Well, last fall, we started studying through this letter of 2 Corinthians, this letter that was written by Paul to the church at Corinth. And we spent 10 weeks last fall looking at the first seven chapters of this book. And so far this winter, January through March now, we've spent eight weeks looking at the last half of the book. And Lord willing, next week, uh, we're going to finish our study uh, through the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, the central theme of this book, I shared this with you a few months ago, but in case you, you hadn't uh, remembered that or, or, you know, it's left your memory in these last few weeks, 2 Corinthians is all about the relationship between suffering and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in Paul's life. It's about how that the Spirit is working in his ministry. It's about how the Spirit is empowering his message. Now the funny thing is, is that Paul had some opponents there in the church at Corinth. And their biggest argument against Paul was that he suffered too much. How could he be a servant of God and deal with so much suffering? Well, Paul argued that his weakness as an apostle is the very means by which believers are comforted. That his weaknesses as an apostle were the very means by which God in Christ is made known to the world. Paul's suffering as apostle is thus the very means that God used to reveal his glory to the people of the first century. I would say to you today that our suffering as followers of Jesus Christ are the very means by which God is going to use us in this world as well. Over the past two weeks, we've been able to learn firsthand about some of the hardships that Paul experienced during his life and, and ministry. And in an ironic twist, Paul validated his ministry among the Corinthians by boasting of these hardships and by boasting about his weaknesses. And so as we move into a study in chapter 12 this morning, Paul lets us know that he's not yet finished boasting. I love the fact that the last song that we sang um, talked about the only thing I have to boast in is Christ. Paul's saying the same thing here this morning. He's not yet finished boasting. He has one more experience that he wants to share with his brothers and sisters in Corinth. An experience that was so spectacular that none would readily believe it. So, rather than sharing it as his own experience, which could have been misinterpreted as trying to impress others, because that's what the super apostles had done, right? Rather than sharing it as his own experience, he shared it as the experience of this man that he knew. So if you would, please open your Bibles and read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
If you're a Uversion Bible app user, the interactive notes are there and the text is there, or of course it's always on the screen above. We're going to start this morning by just reading the first six verses, but we're going to continue on into the chapter as, as the sermon goes along. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1, the Bible says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this. I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. This morning, we only have three points today. Uh, Don't count on that as necessarily being a shorter sermon because next Sunday we have seven. So we'll see. Um, Yeah, I saw those eyes. (laughs) Um. But this morning, the first thing we want to think about is that Paul had the opportunity to experience heaven personally. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be caught up into the presence of God? And like he said, he doesn't know whether he was literally there or spiritually there in a vision. But can you imagine what it must have been like? To experience heaven personally. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, okay, well, when did this happen? Our text says that Paul said this happened 14 years earlier. Now, the book of Corinthians is is believed to have been written somewhere between A.D. 55 and A.D. 56. And so if that's the case, this would mean that this experience happened somewhere around A.D. 41 to 42. So what was going on in Paul's life at this time? Well, in order to understand this, we need to kind of have a basic concept of the timeline of his life, uh, specifically since his conversion. So his conversion that happened that we find in Acts chapter 9, when he saw the great light and was blinded on the road to Damascus, that happened somewhere around A.D. 34. And then right after that, the Bible says that he stayed there in Damascus for some days. After he left Damascus, he went to Arabia and spent three years in the desert at the Arabian Theological Seminary. Is that why seminary degrees are three years, Dr. McCann? I don't know. Maybe. But Paul spent three years in the Arabian desert, being taught by the Lord Jesus the truth of God's word, evaluating all of the Old Testament law and the prophets in order to 
understand how Jesus was the fulfillment of all those things. Through the Holy Spirit, he spent those three years learning the deep truths of Scripture as it related to Christ. So after this time in Arabia, he returned then to Damascus and then went on to Jerusalem for a few weeks, it tells us. And then after that, he returned to his hometown in Tarsus. He most likely arrived in Tarsus somewhere around A.D. 37 to 38. So it was this time, after he had spent all of this time learning from the Lord, after he had spent time being discipled by some men in Damascus and time visiting with some of the, the men in Jerusalem, he returned home and God allowed him to have this experience while he was there in his hometown. So what was it? What was this experience that he had? Um, well, Paul states two times that he is unsure whether this experience took place in the actual presence of God or if this was some, just some sort of vision, whether God took him physically to heaven or if he simply had that vision of what paradise was going to be like. What he tells us is this. He said, it is indescribable. If there was ever something that Paul could boast about, this would be it. God showed me what heaven was going to be like. You know, when I was seven years old, I had a dream of what heaven was like. I was convinced that's what heaven was like. Um, I think it was just a dream. <laughs> but Paul was actually there. He saw for himself. He said it was indescribable. He could have boasted for sure. But folks, that has never been Paul's goal in all of this boasting that he was doing. It was never his goal to promote himself or make himself look impressive to someone else. He refuses to boast in what the flesh loves to exalt in. He does not want to do what so many leaders do today in churches. What is that? Well, they, they cultivate a certain persona. They build a platform. They worry about crafting their public figure. They present themselves as one carefully prescribed way in, in trying to show everyone who they are. Paul is unconcerned about a platform. Paul is unconcerned about his personal persona. His only concern is that the truth of the gospel is proclaimed and people place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. No other concerns. Paul's only desire was that someday people would be able to experience for themselves what he had seen in the presence of God. What he caught a glimpse of that day. 
So if he wasn't going to tell others what he saw, what was the purpose in allowing Paul to see this vision? Allowing Paul to get this glimpse into glory. Well, Dane Ortland tells us this. He said, God had a deeper purpose in bringing Paul up into the heaven for an unutterable foretaste of glory. The Lord intended to show Paul where real spiritual power lies. Paul learns the lesson of all lessons for servants of Christ. And the lesson is this. God's power interlocks with moral human weaknesses. Did you get that? God's power interlocks with human, moral human weaknesses. It's only when we learn this lesson that we stop trusting in our own strength and we become dependent upon God and upon God alone. This morning, what are you depending on? Who do you trust? Do you trust yourself or are you trusting in God? As you can imagine, being taken up into the presence of God, whether physically or just spiritually, Paul could have become big-headed and proud about his special privilege that God had laid upon him. But God made sure to give him exactly what he needed to make sure that that would not happen and that Paul's service would be effective as he served the Lord. And we find that in our next few verses. If you have your Bible, continue reading with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The second thing I want us to notice this morning is that Paul had an obstacle that God chose not to remove. He had an obstacle that God said, no, I don't want to take it away. So what was this obstacle? Now, when we think about a thorn in the flesh, we might today picture, you know, a little bitty uh, small rosebush thorn. And you know what? If you've ever grabbed a hold or accidentally touched one of those, it hurts, doesn't it? Of course it does. But the term used here in the Greek doesn't designate a little object such as a rosebush thorn, but it could designate an object as large as a stake, a tent stake, something that was large enough that a person could be impaled upon this. You see, the, 
the thorn generated more than just a mere annoyance for Paul. It generated agony corresponding to the glory of what Paul had seen in the highest heaven. He had seen the glory of God, the presence of God, and so in order to keep him from becoming conceited, God gave him agony here on earth. The word here that the ESV translates as harass, in the King James Version, it's translated as buffet. Um, and the idea behind this word is to strike something with a fist. To buffet over and over, being stricken with a fist. This was more than just an annoying thing. By the way, this is the same word that was used in the Gospels when it talked about Jesus being struck by the Roman soldiers as he was being crucified. It was a violent way to treat someone. So what was this thorn? Paul says it was a thorn in the flesh. What was the thorn? That's what everybody wants to ask. Let me tell you definitively, we don't know. And I'm not going to try to guess. I'm not going to give you, uh, you know, any ideas necessarily because the Bible does not say what the thorn was. And you know what? I think that's very intentional on God's part. By the way, he does that a lot. He's very intentional about everything he does. But God is very intentional that he does not tell us what Paul's thorn is because if he told us what that thorn was, we would somehow fixate on that thorn. Everyone who had the same thorn as what Paul had would be somehow revered for their suffering. Everyone who struggled with something else would, be ju would just be told to buck up and deal with it. But he doesn't tell us what that thorn is. Because folks, I believe by not telling us what the thorn is, it allows each of us to apply these truths to our own lives. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that my, my thorns in the flesh were as intense or as violent or as you know, difficult as what Paul was dealing with. But you know what? They're difficult enough. <laughs> and you're dealing with those same kinds of issues in your life. I don't know what your thorn in the flesh might be but I know that we all deal with struggles besides Paul's point is not the content of the, of the thorn but Paul's intent with the thorn what was the purpose for this obstacle what was the intent behind God giving Paul this thorn in the flesh. Well, the purpose becomes very clear in verse 7. It says to keep Paul from becoming conceited. Simply to keep Paul from becoming conceited. The thorn's purpose is to deflate the certainty that Paul would quietly become puffed up 
over his indescribable experience in heaven. And so the Lord lovingly, gently, sovereignly afflicts his dear apostle. Did you hear that last part? He lovingly, gently, sovereignly afflicts his dear apostle. Was it really the Lord that afflicted Paul with this thorn in the flesh? I mean, the text tells us that it was a messenger of Satan sent to Paul to harass him. Is it really God that has afflicted Paul? Well, folks, just as God allowed Satan to test his servant Job with so many trials and so many difficulties, God is allowing Satan to harass Paul as well. In this case, the work of Satan to harass him is accomplishing God's work of keeping Paul humble. Satan probably loved the fact that he got to harass Paul. He probably thought he was harming Paul's ministry. That's because Satan is short-sighted. He doesn't see the big picture like God sees the big picture. God knew that this work that Satan was doing, buffeting him, harassing him, was doing a work in Paul's life that was necessary. It was to keep him from becoming arrogant and proud. Brothers and sisters, it is vital in our spiritual walk with the Lord that we recognize that he is using difficulties and trials to transform us into the image of Christ. Did you hear that? The things we're dealing with, the things that we just get so frustrated with, those are being used by God to make us into the men and women of God that he wants us to become. David Guzik points this out. He said, many of us think that real Christian maturity is when we come to a place where we are somewhat independent of God. The idea that we have our acts so together that we don't need to rely on God so much in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment things that happen. He goes on and says, this is not Christian maturity at all. God deliberately engineered debilitating circumstances into Paul's life so he would be in constant, total dependence on God's grace and God's strength. That's a powerful statement. That's why I quoted it rather than saying it myself. He said, David Guzik said, God deliberately engineered debilitating circumstances on Paul's life so he would be in constant and total dependence upon God's grace and God's strength. 
Folks, God's strength, God's power will not be manifested in our lives until we become completely dependent upon him. That's why James said in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses those trials to equip us to be the people he wants us to be. To do the work he wants us to do. To minister in an authentic way to those he has called us to. Paul said it a little differently in Romans chapter 5 when he said, Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. You know, if you read Paul's stuff without an understanding of God's purposes, you'd think he's crazy. We rejoice in our sufferings? Why did he say that? Well, he tells us is the good news. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And then the cycle begins. And you have hope to go through that next issue of suffering. And that next issue of suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which gives you even more hope for the next time. God does not initiate evil in such a way that he is morally culpable. But because of his sovereignty, there is nothing that happens in this world that goes beyond his control. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Nothing goes beyond the sovereign control of God. So what did Paul do about this obstacle? What did, what did Paul ask God to do about this obstacle? Well, it says here in the text that he asked three times. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He wanted God to remove this thorn in the flesh. Dane Ortland noted that three times likely means Paul pleaded with the Lord to exhaustion. It was a complete, comprehensive, full request. G. Campbell Morgan said that this is the Hebrew figure of speech for ceaselessly, continuously, over and over again. He's pleading with the Lord, take this away from me. But God said no. You know, it reminds me of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 11. Where the apostles said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he showed them the model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. After he shared that prayer, that model of how to pray, he shared with them a story about the persistent neighbor. You remember that? Who had someone show up late at night and she had nothing to give them. And so she went to her neighbor and knocked. He said, go away. 
I'm in bed. My children are in bed with us. I don't want to get up. Leave us alone. So what did the neighbor do? And what did the man finally do? Got up and gave bread. That tells us that we should pray persistently. Or I think uh, the, the translation that, that I read most says impetuously. We need to be persistent in our prayer to God. But you know what? Persistence doesn't mean we're going to get the answer that we hope for. Not in this situation. Paul pleaded with the Lord over and over and over again. And yet still, God said no. God did not answer Paul's prayer because it was not God's will for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. It was God's will that the thorn in the flesh remain. This thorn was accomplishing God's will in Paul's life. That was keeping him humble. And that's what God knew he needed most. Charles Spurgeon said this, and as it, all Charles Spurgeon quotes are, this is a, a little older, so I want you to pay close attention to this. He says, from all this, referring to Paul's thorn, from all this I gather that the worst trial a man may have may be the best possession he has in this world. The worst trial may be the best possession. He goes on. I didn't include this on the screen, but he goes on. He says that the messenger of Satan may be as good to him as his guardian angel. That it may, that it may be as well for him to be buffeted by Satan as it ever was to be caressed by the Lord himself. He concludes that thought by saying the worst form of trial may nevertheless be our best present portion. What you may see in your life right now as being the worst possible thing that could be happening. God may look at that and say this is going to be great. Because he sees the bigger picture. I don't know what you're going through in your life right now. But I do know that every single one of us has some type of trial going on in our lives that we wish God would remove. My question to you is, have you considered why it's there? Have you thought about why is God allowing me to deal with this? Not just, God, why are you making this happen to me? No, but God, why are you allowing this? What is your goal? What is your purpose behind all of this? Has God given you unexpected gifts, also known as thorns, <laughs> that keep you humble? What is he trying to teach you through this time of trial? 
Has this season of trial turned into a never-ending cycle of trial? Do you feel like Satan's using you as a punching bag right now? Folks, we need to let this truth sink deep into our souls this morning. And that truth is this. God's grace is sufficient for me. Whether God chooses to remove my thorn or he strengthens me under that pressure to endure it, he will show himself strong on my behalf. I just need to trust in his all-sufficient grace. Let's return to our text this morning and read the next four verses as we look at our last point. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10 says, For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what, you, in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. The last thing I want us to think about this morning is Paul had both contentment and strength in his weaknesses. Paul had both contentment and strength in his weaknesses. I want to focus primarily on verse 10, and next week we're actually going to jump back in and uh, look at verses 11, 12, and 13 a little bit more. But in verse 10 he says that, For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then he makes me strong. We really don't believe God's grace is sufficient until we believe we are insufficient. Alan Redpath described the person that God can use in this way. He said, God works through the man who has been wiped clean and turned inside out, his life emptied before the Lord until he is hopelessly weak that no flesh might glory in his presence. Folks, that's what God wants from us. He wants us wiped clean, turned inside out, out and hopelessly weak so that we will depend upon him. So when I am weak, he makes me strong. And when I am content with my weaknesses, then 
He uses me for his glory. What kind of weaknesses is Paul content with? Well, he lists five categories here in our text. And each of these becomes increasingly more intense if you look at it. He says, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Weaknesses is a general term that refers to all human incapacities. There are a lot of ways that we are not capable as human beings. Well, weaknesses refers to all of those. Insults refers to the mistreatment by others, either by words or actions. Hardships are these experiences that squeeze Paul in such a way that force him into uncomfortable limits. Persecutions refer to afflictions at the hands of a hostile enemy. And calamities, not necessarily just natural disasters as, as we might think of calamities, but calamities here refer to truly overwhelming experiences. Devastating circumstances that strike your life and make you real. Because you just don't know how to deal. Paul said, I'm content with all of these things. And you know what? I think we need to take a closer look at what this concept of contentment is as well. Paul says he is content with these things, but the Greek verb is actually much stronger than that. It means not just to be content, but it means to be well pleased with. It means to delight in something. So Paul isn't saying that he's just willing to put up with his weaknesses. Paul is saying that he embraces his weaknesses. He leans into them. He delights in them. For when he is weak, then he becomes strong because God gives him that strength. Folks, what is your attitude today toward the difficulties and the trials that you're dealing with in your life? Because contentment absolutely is an issue of attitude. What's your attitude? Do you consider yourself blessed? When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Are you blessed by that? Do you rejoice and are you glad for your reward is great in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you? That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said you are blessed when you're persecuted. You should rejoice Or do you grumble? Do you complain about your thorn? Or worse, do you question God's love for you? Do you question God's wisdom for your life? 
Do you question God's power? Do you question his compassion? Or maybe you just question his sovereignty. Well, I guess God just can't handle this. Oh, heavens no, heavens no. He is sovereign. If that's your attitude, then I don't think you've asked God to show you how he's using your thorn in your life. I guess the question really boils down to this. If, if you take everything that's been said and just boil it down to one big issue, I think it's this. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? In the YouVersion interactive notes for today's service, I have included a link to a Bible reading plan called My Grace is Sufficient for You. And so if you're interested in that and you don't use YouVersion or you don't know how to find that, come find me and I'll show that to you. Uh, but if you do, you know what it is and you can sign up uh, uh, to, to do that plan. It's a 10-day plan. Uh, it's really good and it really focuses in here on 2 Corinthians 12. But in the devotional on day 5 of that plan, the author said these words. He said, Paul was desperate in his desire to find relief from this burden. But relief can only come in one of two ways. It can come by removing the load or by strengthening the shoulder that bears the load. Instead of taking away the thorn, God strengthened Paul under it. And God would show his strength through Paul's apparent weakness. To do this, Paul had to believe that God's grace is sufficient. But we really don't believe God's grace is sufficient until we believe we are insufficient. In Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34, the Bible tells us that God gives grace to those who are humble. Humility is realizing that we are insufficient. This proverb is quoted by two different authors in the New Testament. You know it's an important verse when it's quoted in the New Testament, folks. James in James 4, verse 6 and 7 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God gives grace to the humble. Will you live out the words that we find here in Proverbs 3 today? 
Will you, in humility, receive God's grace in your life? Or as it tells us earlier in that chapter, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, which I know many of you consider to be your life verse or verses. Will you live those verses? Will you trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him so that he will make straight your paths? Do you trust him to do the work that he wants done through the things that you deal with in your day-to-day life? Do you trust him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have taught me some very difficult lessons in my life about trust. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the thorns. Thank you. I thank you for the trials. Thank you for the difficulties. Lord, most of all, I thank you that you love me enough to not leave me where I am. Lord, help us each one to trust you today with all the things that we're dealing with in life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.